When Erin was 13, she was madly in love with a boy, and she wrote about him in her journal. Sunday, January 8th, 1989. Kim just called. She asked if Matt asked me out, would I say yes? Of course I would, I told her. She asked if he did drugs, would I still like him? No. All caps, three exclamation points. She called back later to say he was on drugs. I don't believe her. I love Matt. I'll always love him. By the way, I have no idea who Matt is. (laughs) Thank you. That's Aaron reading about a teenage crush. I'm Dan Meisner, and this... This is Grown Ups Three Things They Wrote As Kids. How are you doing? It is very, very nice to see you. This is a show where we go back in time to remember the good, the bad, and the awkward parts of growing up. This time, recorded live in Chicago, we have a letter to the universe, a rewritten obituary, a song about love and arithmetic and much more. This stuff is weird, it is wonderful, and sort of like your friend's claims about your crush's drug use, even though it can be hard to believe, it's probably true. So think about who you were when you were a kid, and stick around. When Jessica was 15, she went to camp. And on the last day of camp, as a way to remind herself and her friends of everything they'd gone through together, Jessica wrote letters to her camp friends. And if you listen closely, you'll notice a certain formula, almost like Jessica used a summer camp letter-writing template. Please welcome Jessica to the Grown Up Street Things Wrote Kids stage. A quick heads up, Jessica uses some cuss words in her letters, which we do not bleep. Dear Renit, well, what can I say? This has been a kick-ass summer. <laughs> First, there was Omri, Jonathan Raffaelli, and Daniel Warner, who we just melted for. <laughs> then there was Canoe Trip, where we obviously excelled. <laughs> at sucking, ha-ha. <laughs> Push me into a swamp, why don't you? And then there's laughing so hard, you, me, and Jody peed all over Esther's blanket. (laughs) Don't tell Esther for life. (laughs) Renit, I love you so much, and no matter what shit goes down, we'll always be around for each other. And we always need to keep in touch, even though you're not going back to bitch-ass Hebrew school this year. (laughs) I hope you know, quote... The best thing you've ever done for me is to help me take my life less seriously. It's only life after all. Close quote, the Indigo Girls. (laughs) Love, Jess. Dear Jackie, well, where can I begin? How about talking about our first kisses or our sex talks with Abe and Eitan, two much older counselors, creepily enough? Crying in bed, listening to the boys on the side soundtrack and contemplating our futures, having older, not-so-hot boyfriends, you always listening to me, and always being kind and caring and never afraid to speak your mind, you are one of the most grounded and strongest people I've ever met. I love you so much. Always remember, quote, 
Take care of the memories, for you cannot relive them. Unquote. Bob Dylan. <laughs> Love, Jess. Dear Jody, well, what can I say? <laughs> I can't believe summer's over already. I'm never going to forget us sitting on the deck, singing Ani DeFranco and Tori Amos forever. <laughs> or not paddling on trip and making Renit do all the work. Ha ha. Or popping each other's blackheads. Come on. I know you love it. <laughs> Jody, you're like a sister to me, and I'd be a wreck without you. But if you ever tell anyone about Esther's pee blanket, you're dead. <laughs> Quote, I can't remember all the times I tried to tell myself to hold on to these moments as they pass. Close quote. Counting crows. <laughs> Love, Jess. Thank you very much. Our next reader, Danielle, shared a song she wrote when she was a teenager. And the thing you need to know about Danielle's song is that she didn't write this from the perspective of a teenage girl. Instead, she wrote this song from the perspective of what she imagined a teen boy would write if he was writing a song about teen girls he was crushing on. Do I have that right, Danielle? Yes. Please welcome to the Grown Ups Who Thinks They Wrote His Kids stage, Danielle. In this world, there are times when one and one can equal one. I thought that we were one, but it would seem that in this situation, my math was dead wrong. That's why I wrote this song. Cause I wanted to tell you that you don't know how happy I am Knowing you found love Even if I'm not the one you chose Even if I'm not the one that you spend all of your nights dreaming of I care for you enough to let you go I just hope he knows what he's got Cause it hurts so bad, I try not to think about it a lot. <laughs> but even so, sometimes these thoughts fly free. Lucky him, lucky you, unlucky me. <laughs> It is not that I am such a good sport. I am no such thing. It pains me just to sing this, but this is the lesser of two evils. Think how it would be if that oh-so-lucky he weren't there to make you happy. Cause you don't know how sad it'd make me seeing you alone, watching you without someone to hold. I'm glad he's there to say he loves you and tell you you're his own. Another sweet, sweet nothing the lovers should be told. 
I just hope he knows what he's got. Cause it hurts so bad, I try not to think about it a lot. But even so, sometimes these thoughts fly free. Lucky him, lucky you, unlucky me. Thank you. One more time for Danielle, ladies and gentlemen. Our next reader, Lupe, shared two different pieces of writing, both from the year 1992, when he was 15. He shared a poem entitled, To Love You. But before that, we heard a short essay Lupe wrote for school, after his class had read the book, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which is all about the lives of immigrants in Chicago in the early 1900s. Please welcome Lupe to the Grown Up Three Things They Wrote as Kids stage. This is a 15-minute impromptu reaction to reading the book, The Jungle. Today, I will abstractly contribute my opinion about the book, The Jungle. I admired Jurgis for his determination and eagerness. When Jurgis first came to this country, he didn't know anything about the country, so he seemed ignorant, and that's how he was treated. We should treat immigrants with open arms and be up to helping out. My uncle crossed the border illegally this Saturday. They stuck him behind the seat of a pickup truck. It was cold and tremendously uncomfortable, but he crossed. He got sick, very sick in fact. If we are all immigrants, why do some people hate other immigrants? Immigrants are in a bad position as it is, and negative opinions don't help much. It hurt to see him sign a fake name to the social security card and the resident alien card. The beginning of hell but no one will know that he went through it because he used another name. He accidentally started signing his real name and he felt so stupid. He was scared to go to the store because he thought immigration was gonna catch him. He is a father, honest, loyal, good friend, doesn't drink, very religious, doesn't smoke, life smart, but what does that matter? He's just another dirty Mexican who came to steal a job. And what jobs are there to steal? He has to work just as hard, more actually, to get a job. Language, legal papers, and a bunch of other things stop him. But does he sit around on his ass moping? No. He already has an interview to, uh, today. <clears throat> Not bad for a two days work in a place you've never been in. He thinks I'm so smart. He tells me because I know English and because I go to school. This makes me wonder of everything I take for granted. I'm happy that he's here, but I feel sorry for him for what's to come. Then I look at my mom and dad and say it's all worth it in the end. The trick is making it to the end. I vow to make the honor roll second semester for my uncle, my parents, and everyone I represent. Time's up.
And just like a 15-year-old, let's change emotions in seconds. <laughs> the only context you need here is that this is like Big Daddy Kane meets Keith Sweat. <laughs> this piece is called To Love You. <laughs> All day, I could hold you in my arms. Oh, so very tight. I would never let you go. I'd hold you with all of my might. I can't stand it when you're far, baby. I need you near. So close that I can whisper sweet little nothings in your ear. <laughs> never in my life do I ever want to lose you. Out of all the others, I knew I had to choose you. No matter what, I can't stop thinking of you. There's nothing more important to me than to love you. I know I say it a lot, and with a lot of affection, I just think beautiful things deserve the proper attention. When I see you with someone else and I act strange, don't ask why. Just remember no one else could love you more than I. I have so much love for you that I could surely shout it out. You are the one for me that is without a doubt. To me, there is no one else above you. My only occupation in life is to love you. <laughs> and that's Droopy, 1992. Pride, power, peace, and passion. Thank you. Not everything we hear on the Grown Up Street Thinks They Wrote as Kids stage is funny. And often, the most powerful moments at our shows come when readers share material that's bittersweet or gets at the more difficult parts of growing up. When Lydia was 16, her grandfather passed away. And the thing you need to know about Lydia's grandfather is that he was a chemist working at DuPont where he discovered nylon, the plastic. That's right, Lydia's grandfather discovered nylon. And when he died in 1996, the New York Times published his obituary. But when Lydia read the obit, she didn't think it captured who her grandfather really was. So as a way to work through her grief and to set the record straight, Lydia wrote a new obituary. Please welcome Lydia to our stage. <laughs> Getting it straight. The fact of the matter is that my grandfather died. Not Grandpa, Papa, Pop-Op, Dr. Hill, or even Mr. Inventor Man, please help me with my chemistry homework. It was Grandfather. It had always been Grandfather. For 17 years, he had been the man who gave my sister her incredible height, my father his unflappable mind, my aunt someone to dote on, and to my grandmother, Winky, he gave a husband. To me, he gave logic, 11 E's for math and science, driving skill, a summer home, potato and not potato, a stubbornness which challenges that of mules, and my 1930s Fred Astaire romanticism. We knew he was fading. We knew he was not going to last as long as my grandmother, but we never expected that he would actually go through with dying. So when I think about why I did not tell my friends, plenty of reasons emerge. It seems strange that I would not want to have someone come up to me, drape an arm around my shoulder, and say, I'm sorry to hear about your grandfather. Mine died just a little while ago, so I know what you're going through. Come and talk whenever you need to. But for some reason, that was the case. 
No matter how eloquently it was put, I did not want to hear it. Instead, I chose to stay withdrawn, keeping myself mentally and emotionally from my friends. Somehow I did it well enough that none of them guessed that anything was wrong. The only one who saw me weeping that Super Bowl night was just, just thought I was having a bad week, culminating in a fight with my boyfriend. Bad week, completely and totally correct. Fight with Michael, hardly. The facade would not last long. During the following week, it usually lasted until I got home, but a couple of times it did not last through fourth period. Each night, I attempted to recharge my batteries, but something would prevent it. The strain of the whole situation brought out my impatience and irritations with the stupidest things. The color of my walls drove me straight up them. A comma splice in my history book made me unable to finish the reading. Imaginary numbers no longer made sense, especially when they were attached to signs and cosines and grids. <laughs> Who cares why Michelle was going to Besançon par avion? I went as far as getting into a catastrophic fight over a tape with one of my closest friends. My parents saw what was happening and allowed me to stay home one day. I jokingly told my friends that I was not used to the whole five-day school week thing, not caring if they believed me. The New York Times finally printed his obituary four days later. Julian W. Hill, Nylon's Discoverer, dies at 91. It had a nice picture and lots of nice adjectives and adverbs as it described the history of nylon. The funny thing is that he honestly did not care about nylon, DuPont, or the fact that he invented the world's most useful plastic. He cared much more about Hawk Mountain Bird Sanctuary, which he founded, and where he found the remnants of his invention lining hawks' nests and wrapped around their babies' necks. He loved writing to Chevrolet to berate them about the pathetic quality of their automobiles and then buying a Chevy S10 pickup. <laughs> and my grandfather adored women. He could tell if a woman was in the room the moment the door opened. He could tell if she was intelligent by the way she walked. He hated it when my sister and I dressed in t-shirts and shorts. For dinner, we would always be requested to wear skirts. The longer, the better. He despised the Golden Girls and loved Murder, She Wrote. He always, he always rooted for the lone female on Jeopardy, and he would have loved Miss Sharma, my geography teacher. Every summer, he would bop about our 20-acre farm on the vineyard with his, in his yellow, little yellow golf cart, raising hell. My sister and I were under strict orders to keep him company whenever we could. But Winky Mom and Dad never knew that we'd jump for the opportunity. When we were younger and he still worked in his vegetable garden, he taught us how to say tomato and potato. He told me about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I asked him to waltz with me at my wedding. As we got older, around 10 or 11, he let us drive his cart around. He would ask us about our sailing lessons. I would watch him complete the New York Times Magazine puzzle, crossword puzzle, the strains of his violin would keep Kern and me company as we played frisbee in the early evening, and we promptly fell in love with swallows when he told us they ate mosquitoes. <laughs> Watching Angela Lansbury became a ritual every Sunday night. The year I was 13, grandfather kept a wide berth as my father patiently taught me to drive stick on the Chevy and how to shoot beer cans off a fence with a 22 rifle. I joked with my sister that every summer, grandfather awaited the arrival of our station wagon more for our cats than for us. I also silently watched as he oversaw a hired gardener waiting through his asparagus. The arrival of the mail became the best part of his day. His violin was sold. The name of a bird was still instantly recalled when its song was heard. He began watching the TV instead of the rolling mist blanketing the fields. He told my mother not to do anything in the name of pleasure that makes you miserable when she complained about the temperature of the Atlantic Ocean. I sang to him the words, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, when he talked about finding places to die. Instead of helping the tree people in the power company, I sat with him, and we watched them deal with the mess that Hurricane Bob left behind. On Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, I saw him for the last time. I hated it. The stick figure lying in the hospital bed was not my grandfather. The man who was a formidable six-foot-four and overweight had disappeared. When I held his clammy hand, all I could feel were the bones covered by a thin layer of skin. I told him I loved him and drove 80 all the way home. My sister, silent, did not ask me to slow down. 
this is what my friends do not know. This is what the New York Times doesn't know. They don't know what I've lost. I'm not asking them to be omniscient, but why write an obituary if it will not be about the person's life? Why extend sympathy if it's impossible to comprehend the extent of the loss? So I wrote my own explanation, my own obituary. Barely surviving him are a wife of 63 years, a daughter, two sons, and five grandchildren, Alexander, Michael, Susanna, Kerna, and me, Lydia. Thank you. After the show, I asked Lydia why she wanted to share this piece in particular. To be honest, it's one of the few things that I actually still have from my childhood. I wasn't a journal keeper. Um, I don't have those piles and piles and piles of lined notebooks that some of my friends growing up did. And so this was really one of the few pieces of writing that I actually still have. And I'm I'm just so glad that I do. Um, Yeah, I'm really glad that I do. I also asked Lydia what she would do if she could go back in time and talk to her teenage self. 17 to 19 were not, were not my most um, favorite years of my life. And uh, what I would do is I would ask her to actually keep this piece of writing with her and remember the, the tenderness that she showed towards her grandfather and towards the memory of her grandfather because she's going to need that. And not necessarily for the other people in her life, although that's always a good idea, but she's really going to need that tenderness and, and compassion for herself. And uh, that's not something that I, that, <laughs> that I was very good at at that age, was being kind to myself. Um, and that's, that's what I would tell her. Yeah, I would remind her to be tender to, with herself. When Robbie was 12, he got a writing assignment in school, a piece of homework. But partway through completing this homework assignment, Robbie kind of gave up. And instead, he decided to write what he calls a letter to the universe. It was full of passion and honesty, and he says it was the realest thing he had ever written. And after he wrote it, he crumpled it up into a ball, threw it into a hole in the ceiling of his childhood home, and hoped that someday somebody would find it. And then, 15 years later, Robbie's mom moved out of his childhood home. So before she moved, Robbie went over, fished the letter out of the hole in the ceiling. It was still there. And then he brought it to the grown-ups read things they wrote as kids stage. It's called Don't Throw Me Away. <laughs> Don't throw me away for the person who finds this. My name is Rob Telfer, and I'm in the eighth grade. The other side of this paper is a composition assignment I never completed. One of many I didn't complete. Let's see where I gave up. Um, I definitely agree with the statement that smoking in restaurants can be a real nuisance. That's all I needed. Uh, I am finishing eighth grade off at Elwood Community Consolidated School District number 203. I'm doing a comp assignment right now in my brother Dan's room. In school, I'm really confused at who my friends are. There are a few girls that I like, but to them, I'm just a friend. 
Does that mean I'm gay? I don't know. I like to play, I like to play basketball and a video game called X-Wing. I'm a Star Wars junkie, and I'm thinking about starting a fan club. There probably already is one. Anyway, this is just a letter to someone so they can know me better. If you find this, please hunt me down and write back. And then I drew a peace symbol, because I was into peace back then. <laughs> P.S. If this is a relative, my name is Jimmy Hoffa, and I'm alive and well. Thank you. When Kate was in seventh grade, she kept a diary. And at our Chicago show, she shared a few entries all about her friends, her family, and boys. Please welcome Kate to our stage. Um, only context you need to know is I talk about Robin in these a lot. That's my best friend. She's still my best friend to this day. This is all in seventh grade. Um, and my mom is here. You'll hear that in a second. Um, uh, February 29th. Amber. That was the name of this journal. I named them all different names. Um, hey, I hate my mom. I'm not just saying that. She criticizes my friends and me and even and everything. I don't have to be perfect. Same with my friends. Last night, my mom was talking to my dad, and she said I should find new friends, and my dad said that he liked them, and that it's my decision, not my mom's. I love Zuck. Aren't I stupid? Love you, Kate. <laughs> um, April 18th, um, 1996. Amber. Hey, what's up? Nothing here. Robin is driving me insane when around Vicky. She has to do whatever Vicky does. She is a blind follower, but I still love her. It just makes me so funking insane. I just want to bitch at her. I gotta clean my room. Love you. Um, April 26, 1996. Amber. Hey, what's up? I picture life as a pinball game. You can be doing good, then before you know it, you go down the hole. And you find new, <laughs> and you find new interesting things that push you around. <laughs> John likes Robin, great. Robin steals everyone I like. She does it on purpose. I bet that bitch. <laughs> Tomorrow I'm doing something with my real friends, Nikki and Laura. Well, gotta go, love you. P.S. Nikki, Laura, Kate, B-F-F-E-L. That my best friends for eternal life. <laughs> April 28th, 1996. Amber. Hey, what's up? Nothing here. <laughs> Me, Laura, and Nikki are doing witchcraft as... So technically... <laughs> so technically, I'm a witch. My dream has come true. Right now... I'm doing a spell of how to hold and attract a lover. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. I'm trying, and I'm Matt Zuckerman. I love it. Tomorrow is going to be hard. Matt sees in my exploratory class. Yipes. <laughs> well, gotta go. Love you. 
And for the last one, May 4th, 1996. Amber, hey, what's up? <laughs> Nothing here. Well, I should say that. I've been off grounding, so I'm allowed to go do stuff. I was literally on grounding all of seventh grade until this point. Um, <laughs> me, Vicky, and Robin went to the mall. Robin got caught stealing at a candy shop. We were supposed to go line dancing, but now we can't. What am I supposed to tell my mom? My best friend in the whole wide world is grounded for life, and it's part of me and Vicky's fault? The only two good things happened was, one, I got an awesome outfit at the Gap, and a high school boy's phone number. It's 469-9669. His name is John. He's hot. Okay, I'll tell you how it happened. You don't have to beg. While we were waiting for Robin while she was with the police, <laughs> these guys asked us if we drink. We said yes. Then do drugs. We lied and said we experimented. Then if we were prude, we said no. <laughs> he said, do you go far? And we said way far. <laughs> then he gave us his phone number. Yahoo, gotta see, love you, BFFEL. Thank you. That is grown-ups read things they wrote as kids. Our show is recorded live in Chicago and produced by Jenna Meisner. Olivia Nashmi is our associate producer. Our music is by Poddington Bear and Lullatone. Our closing theme is Oh Dear Diary by Sloan. Special thanks to Kevin Reeder and Cards Against Humanity. If you want to know about upcoming live events, the best thing to do is join our email newsletter. Just visit grownups.fm and click newsletter. Or even easier, use the link in the episode notes on your device right now. I'm Dan Meisner. Thanks for listening. Esther's pea blanket, you're dead. <laughs>